Cable cars in the classic spy movie? What are Charters and Caldecott doing in this movie? Did the major events depicted here really happen? Was this another propaganda war movie? What influences do we see for future spy movies? We'll discuss these and more as we decode the 1940 movie Night Train to Munich. Hi, this is Dan. And Tom. From SpyMovieNavigator.com. And we're looking forward to this one. Thanks for joining us. All right, before we start in on the Night Train to Munich, I've been poking around YouTube for cool, older spy movies. I think they're kind of neat. And I ran across a bunch of British B-movies with a bunch of different titles. British B-movies are low-budget, sometimes an hour or so long only, and did not have famous actors or lavish sets. They were meant to be the second feature in a double feature set in a movie theater. But some have been a very nice story and are worth a watch. We will explore more of these and let you know. But one right off the bat is The Traitors. We'll get to that one in another episode. But for now, we've got a night train to Munich to catch. Now, you're talking about that 1962 movie, The Traitors, right? Yeah. Not the TV game show that has the same name? The movie, 1962. Okay. Yeah, that's a good okay, one. Okay, got it. All right, All right so that's th that one we'll do here in the future. But now, we're going to get on this train, and as we start this process, let's talk a little bit about history because right after the opening title credits, we're presented with a screen that says, the action of this film takes place during the year preceding the war and on the night of September 3rd, 1939. Yes, yes. So this definitely is a movie that is about the war or the buildup to the war and what's happening there. So we have to remember that this movie was released in 1940. So it was released shortly after these events occurred so the audience would be fairly familiar with this where so somebody watching this movie now some 80 years later might not quite have the memory as to exactly how this all evolved and for this movie to work you really have to understand what was happening in history at this time so i think it's probably best if we spend 30 seconds or so just recapping history we're not going to do a huge lecture yeah, on the go. history of the war but why is the date of september 3rd 1939 so significant and I kind of had an idea, but I needed to look up the details. Maybe the non-U.S. listeners would have a better grasp on these dates, but I grew up in the U.S., and I'm sure I learned these things in school, but that was 40 or 50 years ago. <laughs> so for me, let's kind of go into you know the fact that this movie is about the lead-up to World War II yep. and France and the U.K.'s entry into it. So Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, and the UK and France declared war against Germany on September 3rd, 1939, which is the date they expressly mention on that opening title page. So then it says that it's the year prior. Well, on March 15th of 1939, Adolf Hitler ordered Germany to enter Prague, which is where the movie starts. Yeah, so that's why it's important. Prague is going to be our main pivot point for this movie. So, now we talked about the events leading up to this with the Munich Conference in the episode we did called Q-Planes, 1939 movie, historical influences on the movie. So, the Munich Conference allowed Hitler to annex a large swath of German-speaking Czechoslovakia called the Sudetenland and essentially chop up Czechoslovakia. So well, that's right. We did two we did two episodes on Q planes. One yeah. was on the historical influences where we talked about that part of it. Yeah. And one was decoding the movie. Yep. It's a great movie, by the way, and it's a great episode. Listen to that one as well. 
All right, so this is where the main part of the movie starts, in Prague, Czechoslovakia. And after the Munich Conference and at the start of Hitler's takeover of Prague, starting on March 15, 1939. The high-level plotline for Night Train to Munich is Germany invades Czechoslovakia, and there's a scientist, Dr. Axel Bomash, played by James Harcourt, who has invented a new type of armor plating, and so both the Germans and the British intelligence services are trying to capture him and bring him to their side. That's okay. So the movie. we've got we've got our MacGuffin here, right? But is the yeah. MacGuffin the armor plating secret, or is it Doctor Bomash? I'm not sure technically which one would be the MacGuffin, because to the plot, both matter, but they don't matter really that much. But I'm going to give it to the armor plating itself yeah, me because. Too. <laughs> Today, that doesn't sound like a very big deal, but especially back when World War II was starting, armor plating, if you had better plating, that'd be a huge advantage for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For tanks and uh, on-the-field battles, that would be huge. So, yeah, I'd say the armor plating, since we never do see the armor plating, and we do see Pomash. <laughs> All right, <laughs> back to the movie. Remarkably, it starts very much like The Lady Vanishes, with a long shot of a building with snowy mountains, while zooming in on the building and bringing us inside the building. The Lady Vanishes, we entered a small inn. Here, we enter a building where we first see Hitler screaming at officers while pounding on a map of Austria. So a more stark opening. You know, I had the same thought, and it's funny, because when we do these, we take, you know, we watch the movies, we take notes, and then on my notes, I had yeah. that this started very similar to the opening of The Lady yeah, Vanishes. Yeah. And it was my first reaction to it. It was very similar. You could tell it was a miniature. Yeah, definitely. And, but it is, so it felt pretty cool. But we talked about this opening shot and how Hitchcock used it in The Lady Vanishes. In our episode, Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes yeah, Decoded. Yeah. And really, you, you, throughout this, you kind of get a Hitchcockian feel to this movie, which is kind of cool. All right, and Billy Russell here plays Hitler in an uncredited role, and most believe he was the first to play Hitler in a theatrical release, so that's kind of cool. We see a series of shots of German troops marching into towns. We get cut-in shots of Hitler pounding on more maps of more countries like Sudetenland in the border area of Czechoslovakia, containing a majority ethnic German population, and also all of the Czechoslovakian army's defensive positions in case of a war with Germany. And here we are, where they're invading Prague. And most importantly for the movie, Prague in Czechoslovakia is where we are brought into the story. And I really like these historical clips they put in here, because although they were recent history when this movie came out, and again, People watching then, this would be very, very familiar to them. I, I, but for me, it was like seeing the Germans marching into towns, conquering new territories and countries. In one scene, they are passing through a guarded gate that has this boom barrier gate right, post right, right, thing. Yeah. And as they pass through, they give the Nazi yeah. salute, you know, the armed raised thing. And the Germans on the horses passing through salute back by raising their hand to their yeah, eyebrow. Right. Now, why, why is that, right? Well, not all German soldiers in World War II were members of the Nazi party. And so this was kind of an old-school salute that happened mm -hmm. here. The army was primarily in charge in the beginning, but Hitler changed all that. So I just thought it was a small, interesting piece of this movie, how even something like that, especially since how close to time this movie was yeah, filmed, yeah. You, you, really get, you really got a feel for the yeah, history there. Yeah, it was almost there. real time, really. 
So we see all these shots yeah. of German of the German military rolling through and marching through cities. And at first I thought, okay, we get it. They are aggressive and we see it. But then I thought, wait, this was a great thing to show because it sets us up for the rest of the movie and what in reality had happened. And because we see lots of shots of this, we feel the angst of the people being conquered. So actually, this works in favor of the movie and makes it better. In the beginning, I thought, all right, we saw too much of that. But but now I think, no, that actually works to enhance our setup of what's going to happen throughout the movie. Yeah, I, I really, really like that. Now, a few minutes ago, you said that the spy mission is to get the Czech scientist, Bomash, captured and brought to our side. The Germans want him and the British want him. So this sounds like a very solid spy movie setup. How are we going to deal with getting this yeah. guy and move him across country yeah. lines? It, the, and the, the plot starts as a group of men is in this building in Prague when the Germans start their takeover of Prague. These are the guys who need to make sure that Dr. Bomash isn't captured. They need him to leave Prague. Bomash is in the meeting and he learns that he's got to get out of the country with his daughter, Anna, played by Margaret Lockwood, as they do not want him and his invention to fall into the Third Reich's hands. Wow. In this scene, we get probably my favorite line in the movie. Okay. Dr. Bomash calls his daughter, Anna, and he says, listen, dear, I don't want to alarm you, but we have to leave the country at once. Go to the airport. <laughs> I don't want to alarm you. <laughs> what? I'm hearing this going like, what? How could he do that so calmly? Now, uh, on one hand, this line seems totally ridiculous to me because this is not a line you would normally hear in yeah. real life. But on the other hand, this type of call probably would have been very realistic and probably oh, did yeah. happen. And that's the frightening thing about wartime scenarios. When it's time to leave, get out I, now. I knew people who had to get out of their country just like this. They, they, they get a call, and you got to get out now. The wife was actually captured, and I, I knew her, and I, and I saw the scars of the, of the tattoo on her arm of her number. So wow. this really did happen. Wow. All right. That's frightening. So here's the setup for the pursuit, right? A double pursuit, if you will. The Germans are after him, and the British are after him. And there's the movie. Now we're going to find out what happens and how. In broad terms, it's a great concept. We have this MacGuffin again, the new armor plating invention of, of Bomash, which both sides want. And so they need Bomash to get it because he is the inventor. It's not produced yet, not manufactured yet. He's the brains of it. This is very much like a Sherlock Holmes movie with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce entitled Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon. The weapon in that movie was a bombing sight device, but it's the same double pursuit idea. Exactly. The Holmes movie came out, though, in 1943. So maybe they have borrowed the idea a little bit here, since that was not based on an Arthur Conan Doyle story. It was an updated version of Sherlock Holmes in World War II. So there you have it. Yeah, and so this kind of also has a feel for the 1943 movie, The Adventures of Tartu, yeah. where here we're, we're trying to smuggle things out to get the armor plating stuffed out, where in Tartu it was about that Nazi poison right, right, gas poison thing. Gas. So, you know, it's a, the MacGuffin's there, you got to do something yeah, about yeah. it. So here, Bomash has to escape, 
and his daughter is instructed to meet him at the airport. But the Germans are a step ahead, and they arrive at their house, the house of Anna and Bomash, and they capture her. Of course, you have to have an issue like this, or where's the story going, right? So anyway, they got her. Now the Germans have the daughter. He's at the airport waiting for the daughter. Aye, trauma. So this is so well done, and Margaret Lockwood, who plays Anna Bomash, is so damn good that whatever scene she is in, we buy into it. And here, she is just spectacular. <laughs> just fabulous. yeah, and I agree. I totally agree with you about Lockwood, and she was great here. She was in the great in the Lady Vanishes. Um, but let's get through more of the story before we talk about the actors, the other talent. Yeah. Anyway, back to the main plot. How do these guys avoid the Germans? and protect the doctor and his knowledge of the armor plating. That's really what the movie is about at this point. And we don't really want to give away all the little plot twists and everything along the way. You know the premise. You know the MacGuffin. I think this is a good spy movie and that we would suggest you watch. I think the thing we want to talk about next is what we do a little bit differently than some of the other podcasts out there, and that's talking about the influencers where one movie or a scene in a movie might influence other movies or have been influenced by another movie or real life. And a minute ago, we talked about them going to the airport. Well, the name of this movie is Night Train to Munich. So there's probably a train yeah, in this you one, think? right? <laughs> so there's going to be a train in this spy movie. And we saw that in the 1935 movie, The 39 yep. Steps, and in The Lady Vanishes. North by Northwest has a big train scene. Um, in modern movies as well, we get From Russia with Love, Casino Royale, Mission Impossible. I mean, spy movies and trains tend to go yeah, together. Yeah. Definitely more trains. This train scene, and like the uh, lady vanishes, the main action unfolds on the train. Here, a lot of the main action unfolds on the night train to Munich. So this is the the substance of the story is going to unfold really on the train a lot of it so certainly night train to munich had influences on from russia with love and probably north by northwest and other movies as well let's move on to what i think is an influencer to the movie and tv show star trek really okay so when the men are in the room at the beginning of the movie in prague uh-huh. these flyers fall down they get dropped from some from some planes yeah. and they float into the open window to where where they are the and they're the, on the balcony yeah. yeah the yeah they're on the balcony there yeah so yeah. the flyer says if we resist german protection prague will be bombed so when i heard this i instantly recalled the phrase resistance is futile from star trek so did night train to munich influence star trek oh possibly but wow. i looked into this more and i read that resistance is futile was first used in a Doctor Who episode in 1976, although in 1965 they had something similar, your struggles are futile. Then I read that episode two, season 13 of Lost in Space in 1966 had the phrase resistance is futile. So did Night Train influence all of these movies? Maybe. Wow. <laughs> that would be something. Yeah, I thought so until I came across Arthur J. Burke's short story, Monsters of Moyen, which was written in 1930, 10 years before this movie, Night Train to Munich, was released. 
And in that story, the line, well, gentlemen, are you satisfied that resistance is futile, appears. Yeah. So that would have been a perfectly appropriate response to these flyers in Night Train to Munich. So I, I'm going to go with saying that Monsters of Moyen influenced Night Train to Munich and these other movies. And yes, the <laughs> phrase changes a little bit, but the concept is the same. Yeah. You you take our stuff, resistance to it, you're going to be bombed. Yeah. Well, they did do well, it. They actually did do that. And they, those were the threats in World War II. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, it may have had influence on other movies. But, wow, that's a, that's a good one. Well, All right. Let me, let me take it one step further back in time. Oh, boy. I'm going to go to Sun Tzu. Hey, yeah, really? Who said, supreme excellence consists of breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting which is exactly what the Germans were telling the people in Prague to do. So all of these things are kind of a turn on that statement. All right. Another influence on Night Train to Munich may have come from the 1939 movie that we did a podcast episode on, British Intelligence. One of the spies appears to be working both sides, and here we're going to have that as well. We first see this spy in the concentration camp in this movie, Night Train to Munich. Which one is he or she really working for? In British Intelligence, this was Margaret Lockwood's character, Helene. We won't give away who it is in Night Train to Munich exactly, (laughs) but you'll find out fairly early on. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to listen to our episode, British Intelligence Decoded, where we talk about this double agent thing. The start of Night Train to Munich has a bit of a familiar feel, as we said, on this topic. In reality, there was indeed a concentration camp near Prague during World War II at Terezin, about 30 miles north of Prague. They say it was originally a holiday resort reserved for Czech nobility. So there is historical influence here with this camp. And there is more stuff that's real is referred to in this movie. Good stuff. And we're going to talk more about this camp scene as we go along here because there are a couple yeah. gems we pick out of it. But the other big one for me is there's this cable car or aerial tramway yeah, used, right. and it's used to escape or to attempt to escape. Mm-hmm. And this is the first movie that I've been able to find that shows an aerial cable car. And like trains, cable cars have been used in numerous spy movies. Yeah. For instance, you've got On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Moonraker, Spectre, Where Eagles Dare, and Kingsman, The Golden Circle. In both Where Eagles Dare and Moonraker, there's a scene where somebody leaps from one cable car to another cable car. While the cable car is moving, the two cars pass each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. And somebody jumps from one side to the other. First time we saw that, as far as I can find, is in Night Train to Munich. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they had cable cars in 1940, right, Tom? I mean, you had to figure that one out. Right? Yeah, of course. I, I went back and looked. And the first aerial lift was in 1644 in Gdansk. Wow. And it was it moved by horses, and it used a rope, and it was used to transport goods, not people. Okay. Because this preceded the steel cables. Wow. There was a person on a rope. That would be kind of really scary. Then in 1874 in Germany, they created one of these with wire cable. And in 1883, the first cars for transporting people were used. All right. 
So this mode of transportation was around long enough to be a real thing in night train to Munich. So it's believable, and its use here influences future movies. And we really like seeing stuff like that. Yeah, you got to love it. That's good stuff. All right, and then there are some more influences on James Bond movies based on the Rex Harrison's character, Dickie Randall, also known as Gus Bennett. And we'll talk about the actors in this movie in a little bit. There's some tremendous stuff going on here. Anyway, Dickie Randall is told by his boss, quote, I suggest you take a week sick leave to enable you to get a complete change of air. And, of course, they want Dickie Randall to be this double agent here. And this is the excuse. All right. This is very similar to what M tells Bond in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> Remember? When yeah. he wants to continue to pursue Blofeld, but they can't officially let him. So Yeah, so take a vacation. Whatever you do on your vacation. <laughs> yeah, right. It's up to you. Randall's also very James Bond-like in his ability to fool people. He's also a bit of a foodie, or at least he has knowledge of champagne. He orders a Krug 28. Bond often calls out the champagne with its vintage in the Bond movies as well. So, kind of cool. All right. Yeah, it is kind of cool to see that start of the spy who knows food, or at least champagne in this case. Yeah, yeah. And then there's, okay, this one might be a little bit of a stretch, but when he's opening the champagne in Anna's room, he tells her, England expects that every Secret Service man this night shall do his duty. Isn't that just a long way to saying, for England, James? <laughs> okay. All right, Sean Bean in, uh, as Trevelyan in uh, GoldenEye. All right, uh, well, there's a connection. <laughs> Obviously. Yikes. Okay, all right, maybe. maybe. I said it was I a know. stretch. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit of a stretch. All right. I, I have a real-world similarity to mention here, too. I, I'm not sure I dare call it an influence but when they're listening to the radio in germany they hear poland attacked germany obviously this was propaganda as we know that germany attacked poland at the start of world war ii this is kind of similar to the situation we have today in ukraine russia invaded ukraine but it's telling the world ukraine attacked russia yeah okay so <laughs> i'm gonna get off that one um, yeah. let's talk let's talk about one thing that made me laugh and it was a difference between the way things were in 1939 1940 and the way they are now so in this movie a german officer picks up the phone and says admiral hassinger please now somebody on the other end of the line is going to route him okay. to find this admiral right Today, what yeah. do you and I do? We pick up our phone or we talk to our virtual assistant and I just say out loud, call Dan. And you appear at the other end of the line, okay. just like this guy had, except I don't have humans inter interacting here. Although sometimes it calls my dad <laughs> instead. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah all right. but, you can't distinguish sometimes. Yeah, well, technology advances. At least the guy wasn't selling a, sending a telegram or something. I mean, come on, he's got a phone. That's pretty good. <laughs> All right. So, yes, there you go, folks. Technology advances, and who knows in uh, 50 years what we're going to be doing. All right. As uh, Leslie Nielsen says in one of his movies, I don't know where I'll be in 100 years, but I know I won't <laughs> smell good. <laughs> All right. Before we get to the cast and crew, I wanted to point out two small things that I really, really like. First, I love the way they set things up with the 
eye doctor for Carl. Carl is the character that Paul Henry plays. And he uses this code to tell the doctor who he really yeah, is. Yeah, that was so cool. That was kind of cool. So this is espionage. There is espionage throughout this movie, and it's it's great espionage stuff. Instead of lots of gadgets and things, this is like real true yeah, espionage that was a really cool scene in the film. So in the movie, yeah, it was. That was some good spy stuff there. And second, when they are driving away from the train, someone says, "Right, man, right." Yeah, you're not in England. <laughs> now that just cracked me up. <laughs> okay. We're going to talk about the characters involved in that in just a minute here, but. This is supposed to be a really tense scene, and they throw that kind of humor in there. To me, it was humorous, in part because I remember driving in Scotland, and here in the U.S., we drive on the right. In Scotland, you drive on the left. In England, yeah, yeah, do, which is why he's like, right, man, you're not in England. Well, I've heard, I yeah, heard those yeah. kind of words from my wife a lot on this drive in Scotland because <laughs> my yeah. wife kept having to remind me to drive on the left. So this scene really hit home for me. Yeah, and it's hard. It's it's hard to get used to i i drove in malta like that once and i thought okay we're gonna leave the car at the hotel and just walk around i think because <laughs> they drive on the on the left as well so let's launch into talking about the talent who made this movie night train to munich yeah this is important because the the actors in this movie are tremendous the acting is tremendous this is well done you're going to see this movie and you're going to say, yes, you are correct. There are many scenes in this movie where we, the viewer, is wondering what is happening and whether what we see happening is a good thing for Anna and the British or a trick. This is what makes the movie intriguing and the director and the screenwriters did a great job of keeping us wondering what is happening and what will happen and who is loyal to the cause, whatever side you are on. And the director here is Sir Carol Reed. This was director Carol Reed's 11th movie and one that won him accolades. In terms of Reed's success, he was nominated for the Best Director Academy Award for The Fallen Idol, The Third Man, and won for Oliver. He also has Director's Guild of America nominations for Oliver, the spy movie Our Man in Havana, Trapeze, and The Third Man. And finally, he was nominated for the New York Film Critics Circle Awards for Oliver, The Fallen Idol, and the movie we're talking about today, Night Train to Munich. So we know the direction for this movie is solid. He also got a Best Documentary Feature Award for the documentary The True Glory in 1945, which he won along with Garson Kanan. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. So this guy is good. And so you know and the direction is going to be solid. Now, as for the cast... The female lead, as we've mentioned, is Margaret Lockwood, who plays Anna Beaumash. And we remember her and her terrific performance in The Lady Vanishes. And we've mentioned this movie a bunch of times today because it heavily influenced Night Train to Munich. Yeah, she was terrific in The Lady Vanishes, and she's equally brilliant here in Night Train to Munich, maybe even more so. Not only beautiful, but a dazzling and exquisite performance in every scene she is in. And it is difficult to pay attention, really, to others when she's in the scene. Absolutely. And so she's she's the main female lead in this. And so the male leads in this are Rex Harrison, James Harcourt, and Victor Laszlo. <laughs> yeah. Victor Laszlo. Okay, oh, yeah. All right, Tom. <laughs> I think you mean Paul Henry. <laughs> yeah, he did play Victor Laszlo in <laughs> Casablanca. Two years later, 
But he plays the character Carl Marson in this one. <laughs> but he is also yeah, spectacular. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but it is hard not to think yeah. of him as Yeah, Victor every time Lazlo. I see Henry, it, 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 instantly I think of Laszlo. So sorry about that one. Thanks for catching it. And Casablanca is probably one of my top couple of movies ever made. Great stuff. All right. That's all right, Tom. Maybe we'll edit that out. No, we won't. We'll leave it this in. Oh, great. Let, let everybody know how much of an idiot I am. <laughs> anyway, James Harcourt is solid as the scientist Axel Bomash, and he's the father of Anna, and he's been in lots of movies, including Hobson's Choice in 1931 and The Farmer's Wife in 1941. To me, he was very mm-hmm. good here, but he's surrounded by so many outstanding performances it's hard for him to stand out, and his role doesn't really have him stand out a lot because it's smaller as well. Yeah, I think that's true. He's surrounded by such great acting who have bigger parts that it is. It, he does a great job, but it's he kind of gets lost in the shuffle, I think. All right, Rex Harrison plays Dickie Randall, part of the British Secret Service, and he plays a double role as a German major, Ulrich Herzog. Harrison looks so young here, but he, he was actually about 32. He's remarkable, remarkable in this role. He plays the major with authority, finesse, confidence, and really true believability. It, it's just terrific. Absolutely. Yeah, there's terrific. a lot more be- believability here in his performance than having him talk to the animals. <laughs> oh, wait, that's no, a different movie of Harrison's. God. Really, Tom, by George, I think you've got it. So I come out with a bad pun, and you go right on top of it with another bad quote. I'm adding to it. (laughs) Anyway, there are many scenes where he is impersonating this German officer where every move he makes is just another enhancement to the scene. For example, this is one that's great. It's simple. There is one scene where he is tricking another German officer into giving him a report where he is simply removing his gloves, finger by finger. But just that action added so much to the scene in terms of depth, refinement, and believability. It was just outstanding. Totally agree with you there. And I think that he, Rex Harrison, and Myra Lockwood, they have lots of screen time together, and they're both just a welcoming sight when they return on screen. They're both awesome here. They seem to have great chemistry yes. as they interact with each other. And, you know, they're employing layers of deceit in this espionage mission and doing it flawlessly. Yeah, they really are. Now, Paul Henry, or uh, Victor Laszlo, as Tom calls him, <laughs> uh, he's playing Carl Marson. <laughs> okay, here. I made a mistake. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he's playing Carl Marson here. And just is stunningly good in this movie. We see early on after Anna is thrown into the concentration camp and the whereabouts of her father, Bomash, the scientists, are unknown. Remember, the Germans wanted to capture him because of the new breakthrough in the armor plating, and the British, of course, want him too. So the scientist, Bomash's daughter here, is in this concentration camp. So Henry playing Carl Marson, is brilliant in this concentration camp scene. Tremendous acting, delivery of the lines is flawless, facial expressions and hand movements in perfect harmony with the words. You believe he is Carl Marson, and being honest, we learn quickly which side he is really on. But he is so good, we cannot help but to think that the good is winning him over. Does it? The concentration camp scene alone is worth the watch of this movie 
And there are many other scenes in which Marson is front stage, and each one is perfection. From the early scenes to the final scenes, he is one of the best reasons to watch this movie. Okay, so I'm going to agree with I'm going to agree with you, Dan, about Henry's performance, especially at the start of this concentration camp scene. And I know this you really like yeah. this concentration camp scene, and it is a good scene, but there's one part of it that really annoys me. And I've watched this movie a few times now, and every time I see it, I just want to yell at the screen. Okay. Anna and Marcin lean up against a barbed wire fence to talk. Their backs are to each other, and they're both touching the barbed wire fence. I mean, come on. Why didn't they get cut up? Wouldn't that have been a little painful? That, that part didn't really seem to make much sense to me no 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 you're not gonna ruin a great set of scenes here in this camp they were fantastic and anyway anna has some type of wedge thing behind where she is sitting if you look and now her head might be touching the barbed wire but she looks like she's leaning it forward a little bit and marson is leaning on leaning his head against the wooden post so there's no worries there but what's attached to that wooden uh, post no, but it's, it's around it he's not touching the barbed wire so actually he's touching the barbed wire i don't think so uh so oddly enough barbed wire was invented in decalb illinois which is about 65 miles west of where we're recording now so it's close by on october 27 1873 a DeKalb, Illinois farmer named Joseph Glidden submitted an application to the U.S. Patent Office for his clever new design for a fencing wire with sharp barbs. So, interesting side note. Though some reports say that the patent was issued in 1867 in the United States for barbed wire to Lucien Smith of Kent, Ohio, who's regarded as the inventor. But, nah, most reports say DeKalb and Glidden are the inventor. So there you go, barbed wire. Talking about barbed wire, there's a little... <laughs> interesting <laughs> side note <laughs> oh man all right oh man that's funny let's get back all right so let's get back to uh, another scene here that uh sh- really showed off some really good acting and it's this oculus scene we talked about him oh yeah going to the eye doctor it's very good uh spy stuff in there definitely and we see marson sees the oculus for not just for his eyes yeah because we know more now Anna's in the waiting room. It's a very solid scene, very well performed by both Paul Henry and the guy playing the Oculus. Yeah, yeah, very, very good scene. We mentioned it before about the giving the code and stuff like that in that scene. And every time I hear the word Oculus, it reminds me of Our Majesty's Secret Service when Draco is telling Bond that I could see she really likes you <laughs> when they're at his birthday party at the bull ring and, and Bond says, I must give the name of your Oculus. <laughs> he didn't think so. All right. So that's a true. Yeah, you don't, you don't see that name used. You don't see the word Oculus used a lot. Not a lot. At now. least here in the States, we usually just say the eye yeah. doctor. Yeah. All right. So all that's true. That's a great scene, and it's a revealing scene. So you're going to keep that in mind. All right. We also have a couple of other actors in Night Train to Munich who were also in The Lady Vanishes, Basil Radford as Charters and Naughton Wayne as Caldecott. Again, these guys were in The Lady Vanishes playing the same two characters. We have two Brits traveling, once again, finding themselves in the middle of espionage. So there you go. They're back. This is a breath of fresh air, really, these two guys, for the whole movie, because it's a pretty tense movie, as we know, with the Germans invading all these countries. And to see them again in their same characters is great. And once again, they play a vital role in this movie. They're a delight in both movies and provide 
really a breath of relief from the tensions as they talk about simple things like leaving his golf clubs at a location thinking he could go get them back again later on but now world war ii is upon them that scene really is the setup for the ultimate resolution of the intrigue in the movie this whole golf club thing so once again radford and wayne play important roles here at one point charters is reading mein Kampf. he thought he would pick it up and makes an off the hand comment i understand that they give a copy to all the bridal couples over here to which caldecott replies oh i don't think it's that sort of book old man <laughs> it's like this just shows some of the innocence that there still was there and among these two characters especially caldecott had never read mein Kampf, so he didn't know what it was about it's an amusing moment of course charters knew what mein Kampf was really about but he, he probably meant that they they give it to, to the new bridal couples because they're going to brainwash them and stuff but Caldecott's comment, oh, I don't think it's that sort of book, old man. That's great. Good. That's a great scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Mein Kampf, uh, the book, actual book, also makes another appearance towards the end of the movie in a rather eh, sarcastic <laughs> and disrespectful way. I okay. <laughs> so look for that. And the, you mentioned that they were a breath of fresh air here. Yeah. But when I, when I first saw them in this movie, I was totally confused. Okay. Because, but at the same time, I was happy because I liked the chemistry between these two actors and the characters and how they were written. But why are they in this movie? I had to figure that out because I was like, "What? What are these two guys? You mean why are characters? They, why are these two actors in the movie? Or why? No, are the why are the two characters? Why are Charters and Caldecott well, in this movie? Role. We saw, we saw them in the Lady Vanishes. Yeah. But what's the tie-in other than there's a lot of tie-ins to the Lady Vanishes? with this movie yeah and so my first reaction was oh it's probably under uh, they're under a production studio contract yeah, maybe. Yeah. and they would go from there well they weren't done by the same studio ah, right there you go night train to munich was done by 20th century and gainsborough pictures did the lady vanishes so it couldn't have been this contract thing okay now one similarity i did find was that some of the filming was done at uh, Lime Grove Studios in the UK, but that wouldn't do it. But then I looked at the creatives for the movie and found that Sidney Gilliatt and Frank Launder are credited writers for both movies. Ah. So that's how this had to happen. These writers created the characters. They owned the characters, Charters and Caldecott, and they took them with them. Okay. And then I, like that. I found out that these characters appear in like 17 movies or TV shows in one form or another. They might have been different actors. Oh, okay. Um, the characters. Or, okay. Yeah, but the characters do. And these two guys, Radford and Wayne, are really, really good together. Yes. They're a great pair. The characters themselves are really good. And they added some levity to Night Train to Munich at points when the movie needed some levity. Yeah. And these guys were giving us that levity. I agree. Same thing in the in the Lady Vanishes. They bring that breath of fresh air again and a little a little reprieve for the viewer to say, Whew, we could take a breath and, and enjoy this part without tension. <laughs> it's good. All right. Caldecott and Charters have bigger and even maybe even more important roles here in Night Train to Munich. It's really, really good stuff. Now, Tom, as you said, the screenwriters were Sidney Gilliatt and Frank Launder. And the story is based on the 1939 short story, Report on a Fugitive, by Gordon Wellesley. 
as we say, the beginning is lots of the German army marching through towns in victory, but the rest of the movie, as the story unfolds, has many very tight, well-executed scenes that take advantage of the sets the characters are in, all well executed. And it's great that they brought Charters and Caldecott back in this movie. They add a lot of enjoyability to it. And as, as you said, Tom, it's fun to see them again. Yeah, and you're talking about these well tight, well executed scenes. Yeah, and I thought one once we got past to the miniature that really looked like a miniature. Yeah, in the opening shot of the building that Hitler was in, and how it was such a likely reference back to the beginning of Lady Vanishes. Yeah, I thought the cinematography was very good. Yeah, it was. The building that Hitler was in in these opening shots was generally an accurate depiction of the Berkesgaden, which was Hitler's mountainside home in Bavaria near Obersalzburg. Now, the camera positioning's well done, and I like it there's a scene when Anna is speaking to Dickie Randall in London, and they're at this table with the sea behind them, oh, yeah, and yeah. it's shot from the other side of the table at table height, though. Yeah, great. And it brings us almost to the table with them. Yeah, and it's I like an excellent it. scene in the way they shot it, to make us really feel like we're there. Yeah, yeah. There are many scenes and shots like this that draw us into the story, which I love in movies. Sometimes it doesn't happen in movies. It happens a lot in this movie. For instance, when there's another one when Dickie Randall's speaking with the Secret Service brass. We're almost sitting at the desk with them. That's how close the shot is and the angle of the camera and so on. Great lighting on the main characters in this scene with the windows behind them, with the sun shining through creating shadows which really are a symbol of the darkness, perhaps, maybe of the mission that's at hand. And we see that technique with the shadows in the background cast by sunlight through windows in several other scenes here as well. So really well done stuff that ties things tightly together. Really good stuff. And Otto Konterek was the cinematographer here. He's done a lot of movies uh, in the 1920s and 30s. He's probably best known for cinematography in Women in the Moon, in 1929 uh, 1935 he did the student's romance and for that one he was nominated at the venice film festival for best foreign film so night train to munich was one of his last movies and he did a great job here fantastic again spy movies and trains go hand in hand a lot of the stuff here is unfolding on the train of course the night train to munich and the train scenes are just magnificent the lighting again, the interaction of the characters, the dialogue, all spot on. And you have to love train scenes and spy movies. I mean, come on. Well, you have to have them. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think we have some firsts here as well as there's the cable car chase. Tom mentioned the aerial cable cars earlier on in the episode. And in this movie, it offers a unique perspective on chases that we will see in later spy movies, as Tom mentioned too. So this cable car scene towards the end of the movie is fantastic <laughs> all right so we talked about the plot we talked about the acting the scenes the influences so that's a wrap of our look at the 1940 movie night train to munich we think this is a movie any spy movie fan will enjoy it is available on youtube for free as of our recording of this so add it to your watch list 
This is a train worth catching. Yes, it is. All right. This has been Dan. And Tom. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Please subscribe to our show through your favorite podcast app and give us a five-star review in your app as well. That helps keep this show going. We thank you for listening because we really appreciate you spending time with us. Thanks. Thanks.